0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Tell Zach's younger than I am. You see how he hopped on that stage? <laughs> Um, Hello, everyone, uh, and welcome to today's program at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Fred Blackwell, uh, CEO at the San Francisco Foundation and the moderator for tonight's program. I am really pleased that I've been excited for a while now uh, to engage with Zach Norris uh, on his book. Zach is the executive director of Ella Baker Center for Human Rights and author of the new book, We Keep Us Safe, Building Secure, Just, and Inclusive Communities. Uh, As the effect of aggressive policing and Mass Incarceration Harm Historically Marginalized Communities and Tears Them Apart. Zach's book asks the question, uh, how do we define safety? Um, Community leader and lawyer, um, Zach believes that in in a radical way to shift the conversation about public safety away from fear and punishment to growth and support and systems for families and communities. Uh, In order to truly be safe, uh, Zach basically argues that we have to dismantle the mentality of us versus them and bridge our divides. In his new book, We Keep Us Safe, uh, the book is really a blueprint of how to hold people accountable while still holding them in community. The result reinstates full humanity and agency for everyone who has been dehumanized and traumatized so that they can participate fully in life and in society in the fabric of our democracy. Zach makes the case that directing resources to health care, housing, education, and living wage jobs results in the kind of stability and well-being and real safety that we think all of our communities want. Please help me welcome Zach Norris. So Zach, now that I've got the script out of the way. Um, why don't you tell us about yourself uh, and uh, what made you uh, write the book? Well, first of all,
1: um, I want to acknowledge uh, my brother, my aunt and uncle, my brother's wife, Vic- Victoria, people who knew me before I knew myself. Um, <laughs> I saw maisha Everhart in the audience also, who's known me since like third grade. So I can't tell no lies, I guess. Um, uh what I wanted to do, if it's all right with you, Fred, is actually read a story um, that I think tells a little bit about myself as well and also will help just kind of situate the conversation um, that we're having today. Um, and, and first, just want to um, appreciate each and every one of you for being here. Um, there are folks who I haven't known quite that long, um but have had an opportunity to get to know so just really appreciate each and every one of you for being here um so i'm going to read this because it is kind of a book talk so my mom told me that you should read a book at a book talk so that's what (laughs) i'm going to do um 1823 month unknown a seven-year-old boy stood on the auction block in richmond virginia his mother was in the crowd begging her master not to sell her son. But the boy would fetch a good price. Slaveholders from the Deep South were desperate for slaves since the abolition of the Atlantic slave trade in 1808, and since the cotton gin invented in 1794 had allowed the production of cotton to really take off. The price of enslaved African people had risen. In this period, one in every 10 enslaved persons was relocated from the states of the Upper South to the Lower South. They were sold down the river into brutally hard labor in the Deep South with no means of staying connected to the families and communities they had known. Slightly over half of them experienced major family separations, meaning children were separated from their parents or spouses were separated from each other. The little boy was just at the cusp of his years of highest output, too. The ages from 8 to 15 years, according to popular wisdom among slaveholders. Children in these sought-after ages were often bought alone. On the auction blocks, enslaved people were lined up by height, making it even more likely that children would be separated from their parents. The buyers examined the little boy as though he were livestock, pulling his mouth open to see his teeth, pinching his arms and legs to find out how muscular they were, walking him up and down to detect any lameness, making him bend and stoop. In the end, he was sold to another slave master in Mississippi. His mother followed him to the wharf where he was put on a ship. When the ship launched into the water, his mother was left standing on the wharf crying. She never saw him again. The boy's name was Joseph Norris. He was my grandfather's grandfather. Mm -hmm. And I'll read just a little bit from the next uh, paragraph, um, just to kind of situate the conversation. Mm -hmm. The myth of the bad guy. These are unrelated yet connected stories. This is the fifth of a series of stories I tell in the book to scapegoat an entire group of people making them the source of all evil is to disregard their human- humanity and as the united states grew from 13 colonies to 50 states this scapegoating made it easier to justify the taking to justify taking the land and lives of indigenous people and the lives and labor of black people there is a long tragic throughline a, ta- a trail of tears a legacy of trauma From stories like my family's to the immigrant families being demonized today. In the name of public safety, to protect our jobs, our wealth, to protect our way of life, to keep our homes and families safe, America has been engineering and expanding a model of systematic scapegoating for the past 200 plus years. I just wanted to kind of start with that as a, a little bit of context setting for the book and about myself. And I think you're getting a note over there. So already, I don't know what's happening. Right, yeah. <laughs> we did something
0: wrong already. <laughs> no, no, we're getting. These are questions that I'm maybe gonna ask you.
1: Oh, Okay, okay. So, um, I had I started wearing each time I went and spoke my Ella Baker Center T-shirt, and I should have w- wore it today um, because one of the things that I want y'all to know is Ella Baker Center is helped me move from being a people pleaser to being concerned about building people power. Um, And I told this story at the lunch, so you have to forgive me, Toriano, I'll tell it again. And Maisha, you know this story because you were with me at that eighth grade graduation. But um, I was very much a people pleaser. Um, I was concerned with um, getting good grades. I was staying on the straight and narrow <laughs> track. I was trying to, you know, not be noticed. And that wasn't too hard because in eighth grade, I was only about this tall, right? <laughs> um, but my hair was like twice as tall as I was. I had a high top fade and, uh You know what it looked like, Jocelyn. Oh, yeah. The one that, you know, my mortar board would barely fit over my head. Um, And we were at eighth grade graduation, and I was trying not to be noticed, and they were calling all the awards. And it was award for math and the award for science, and I got all of the damn awards. Um, And, uh, you know, it didn't. Dawn on me then, but I have since reflected that I was the lightest skinned African American kid in my predominantly black Catholic school, and those disparities that i didn 't notice as an eighth grader I certainly notice now doing this work inside of the criminal justice system, where it 's not just across races but also among races that racial disparities show up right mm-hmm. so the lighter your skin in a courtroom. The lighter your sentence is also likely to be, not just Mm -hmm. uh, across races, but among races. And um, it was the Ella Baker Center that helped me kind of see those disparities to be involved in that work. Um, And since I have really been focused on, well, how do we, you know, not be about pleasing people because this society is not governed correctly? How do we be about really building people power? So that's a
0: little bit about me. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you about the the timing of the book, because, uh, you know, I know a few people who have written books and I know that there are starts and stops and you get mm. blocks and you go uh, in and you got to find funding and just uh, all the litany of things. But yeah. it seems like the book is in its release is timed. Great. Um, I mean, it's yeah. like, you know, a lot of people are talking about criminal justice mm. issues. Now, uh, there's a lot of momentum around what people used to kind of perceive as really radical ideas like police abolition and mm-hmm. prison abolition. It just seems like this book comes at the right time because it, it kind of paints a picture for people what an alternative to our current system looks like. Yeah. So can you talk a little yeah. bit about the timing of the book and how you view it in terms of yeah. what's going on That Yeah, day? no, I appreciate that
1: question because there's the, <laughs> the, the reason I wrote the book when I started writing the book, and then there's a reason that I finished writing the book for, and those are two different reasons, and I'll tell you each, each of them. When I started writing the book, you know, the Ella Baker Center was founded in 1996, and at the time there was the super predator mythology that Hillary Clinton has been called out for, you know, invoking, um, and they were, you know, doling out money to expand juvenile halls, to increase the lockup of young people. And so at that time, when we were fighting, it was like holding a match to a tidal wave, right? Because everybody was just piling on resources to expand mass incarceration. But over time, um, the Ella Baker Center and so many other organizations, people inside the system and outside the system, people like my uncle, um, were questioning that logic and saying, let's actually look at what gives people a real opportunity to be successful and contribute to their communities. And sometimes that was through direct action. Um, I was involved in direct actions fighting the super jail for youth, um, which would have been the largest per capita juvenile hall from being built um, in Alameda County. We we tend to think, you know, like the Bay Area, progressive bastion, you know, that couldn't happen here, but that was actually what they were planning to do. And so we were involved and engaged in direct action and able to stop them from moving that forward. And that became kind of a spark, not just in the Bay Area, but people as far as Baltimore and Louisiana and other places were saying, oh, let's actually challenge this idea of youth incarceration. And so fast forward some 20 years By, you know, 2014, we're passing Proposition 47, which moved resources away from incarceration and towards education and mental health services and treatment. So we got to feeling ourselves like we're doing, you know, we're (laughs) doing some good work. Like Uh there's this mass movement and um, bipartisan interest in criminal justice reform. And we were fighting again Alameda County this time The state had been sued as a result of overcrowding in prisons, and they moved a bunch of money to 58 counties across the state. Now, you might think that those counties receiving that that those funds from the state would say, well, let's do something different with these funds because the state has just been sued as a result of overcrowding. Let's not repeat the same strategies, but that's actually what counties were doing. They were saying, "Let's give most of the money to the sheriff's department and to probation department rather than investing in community-based solutions." So, we basically waged a campaign to get them to move resources away from the sheriff and probation department and to support community-based reentry supports. Mm-hmm. And, um, but what we found is. That those solutions were pretty lackluster. They weren't actually, they were saying they were gonna do jobs, but they were mostly doing job training. They were saying they were gonna support restorative justice, but they weren't actually connecting with real um, folks who had um, kind of traction in the community Mm -hmm. to actually be able to do that work. And so when I wrote the book, it was with the intention of helping to lift up all of the amazing solutions that are in communities across the country, like Restore Oakland. Mm -hmm. Um, It was with the intention of saying, you know, Michelle Alexander and Newt Gingrich all agree. um, Or as I used to tell it, you know, my, my uncle, who's a former probation officer, and my mom, who's a teacher, all agree that we need, you know, criminal justice reform, but there's not a lot of vision in terms of like what replaces mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. So when I started writing the book, it was really with this intention of saying there's amazing things happening in communities across the country that need to be lifted up, that people need to see and understand and feel and touch. Mm -hmm. And that's
0: part of the reason for the book. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of um, areas in the book where you kind of, um, make real and tangible things that you know you kind of feel mm-hmm. uh, and when you look at the system and how it's operating and some of the things that are driving the system. One of those frameworks that I thought was really powerful was this fear versus care mm-hmm. framework. Can you talk a little bit about that and yeah. kind of pull it out a little?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in the book, I talk about moving from a framework of fear to a culture of care and like how do we do that? How do we advance that? And the one example that I'll share is the story of Richmond, California. And Richmond, everybody knows Richmond. Um, it's not far from here. But in 2005, Richmond had one of the highest homicides rate, homicide rates in the entire country. Um, the city had declared a state of emergency. Everybody's up in arms about what to do. Uh, Devon Bogan... Uh, comes to the city council meeting is like, I have an idea about what to do. And he's like, I want to provide mentorship for these young people. And they were like, what? (laughs) Uh, You want to provide mentorship for the people who are shooting at each other? Um, And you know, the city administrator who I interviewed for the book, he was like, well, we had tried everything else, so we were going to try this mentorship program. And so that's what they did. And it got a lot of pushback because yeah. um, Devone basically said, I want to do what has worked for my own kids. I want to provide them with daily positive mentorship. Yeah. I want to provide them with some money in their pocket, and I want to provide them with opportunities to travel and kind of expand their horizons. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, quite the, the, the media catching wind of this was like, you know, Devone Bogan, let me get this straight. You are paying people not to shoot each other um and then what happened is he had a kind of uh a meeting where he was bringing young people from rival neighborhoods together um and trying to build peace and 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 build bridges and there was a fight at city hall so not only are they like not only did you not stop the violence you brought it to city hall right (laughs) um but but when they looked at the overall numbers and they started to see, like, you know, what was happening when they didn't just focus on that one incident, because so much of our criminal justice policy, right, is, is driven by single incidents That's right. in ways that are tragic. Um, when they looked at the overall framework, when they looked at what was happening across time, they saw that violence enrichment was down by some 70 percent um, over the eight year period. Well, they didn't see it right away, but at the end of the process, they were able to look back and say, yes, these trends have continued. Violence dropped some 70 percent in the city of Richmond. And that was as a result of Devone um, really taking that risk with the city, but also taking risk with these young people and those young people taking risk with him. Because when he said to them, everyone in this city has looked at you all at the as the problem, Mm -hmm. I want to engage you as part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And they given their experience naturally probably had some skepticism about that. Um, But they took a chance on him. He took a chance on them. And that was meaningful, not just for them, but really for the city of Richmond as a whole, because now, you know, mothers and grandmothers can take their kids to the park right now, you know, shopkeepers um, can, keep their doors open a couple of hours longer. And that really increased the economic vitality of Richmond as a whole Mm -hmm. and was transformative, again, not just for those young people, but for the city uh, as a whole. So when I talk about moving from a framework of fear to a culture of care is actually about trying to engage the people who we have historically seen as a problem Mm -hmm. and who this current president is scapegoating as the problem mm-hmm. to actually seeing all of our community members as part of the solution
0: mm-hmm. and in sticking with that. Yeah. <laughs> sticking with that and, and scapegoating another kind of powerful moment in the book for me was when, um, you kind of drew the, the line around, you know, we're scapegoating a certain set of people and certain communities around these issues Uh, and not having the real conversation about who's really doing harm Mm. uh, and what the real sources of harm are. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about those?
1: Yeah, and (laughs) I I left y'all with a little bit of a cliffhanger, so I hope you noticed it, but you might not have in my rambling. Mm. But um, (laughs) I started by saying, like, I, I started the book with one reason for writing it, and then that reason changed, right? And what happened is what you all know happened was November 8th, 2016, 9th? Mm. It was one of those days. It was bad. we all trying to forget it. But a certain someone... It's
0: when the Alameda County housing bond passed. In, uh... <laughs> I
1: think... Okay, right on. Right on. I appreciate it. We all got to have our silver linings, Fred. You got to have a silver lining. Um, I'll tell you my silver lining a little bit later. But um, that was uh, a moment um, in this country where we're forced to g- grapple with, um, my kids came to us the next day and they're like, do we need to leave? Cause you know, Saru she tells our kids about what's going on. And so she was telling them about who Donald Trump was and what he thought about immigrant people, what he thought of black, about black and Brown people. And so they were legit afraid and came to us the next day. Like, do we have to leave the country? Um, And, uh, you know, there is, um, I'm going to come back to your question about crime versus harm, but there is a lie that this country is founded on, and it is the lie of white supremacy. It is the lie of male supremacy. It is a lie that justified rape and murder and theft for years and decades and a couple centuries. And it is an abusive lie, because what do abusers do? They tell you, don't trust those closest to you. Only trust me. They tell you, don't trust your neighbors, right? Don't trust your neighbors around the block. Don't trust your neighbors at the border. Don't trust your neighbors in distant lands, even though those folks want the same things that we do, right? And while they're scapegoating and blaming communities, they're actually hiding the real harms that they are doing as abusers. Mm -hmm. That's what abusive people do. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, our criminal court system really reinforces a lot of those dynamics. It reinforces those dynamics by focusing on crime rather than harm. And crime... um, When the police are sent out, uh, as they were, when the police are sent out, oftentimes if there's workers who are demanding one fair wage, they are sent out to break up that strike, not on behalf of those workers who are demanding a fair wage. They are sent out and have been sent out, as they were in Alameda County in West Oakland, to remove those mothers and their children from that home in West Oakland using tanks and, and submachine guns and drones. Um, we found out, you know, it's funny, because uh, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent, so bear with me. Oh, yeah. I was texting Sarah, my partner. I was like, hey, are you coming to the event? Are you bringing the kids? And she was like, no, I'm at the school board meeting. Don't you?" Remember? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Be safe. I had to tell her to be safe at a school board meeting, because you may all know that we have been protesting school closures. And we've been showing up with our kids. We've been showing up with pizza. We've been showing up doing uh, protests. And at one school board meeting in October, the school police showed up. And they stood in front of the school board members. And they told us it was for the school board members' protection. And when we continued our protest, they they uh, clubbed to the ground a, a, a first-grade teacher. They um, beat... Uh, They knocked uh, a a kindergarten parent in the ribs and cracked his ribs. They um, injured my partner and hurt her uh, knee. She had to have knee surgery on January, uh, on December 31st. And so oftentimes the police are unfortunately protecting the status quo Mm -hmm. in ways that reinforce um, injustice and inequality. So that's one of the ways in which the criminal justice system reinforces this unjust order. And, and it also hides harm in the sense that we're not addressing the fact that, you know, uh, people don't have housing, that, um, there are, are folks who don't have enough to eat. Um, those kinds of very real harms, the increasing harms of, of climate change are not being addressed by our criminal court system. Mm-hmm. And so In that way, they are reinforcing this lie that he keeps us safe. Mm -hmm. That Donald Trump, the president, who is abusive, who is continuing these ongoing harms, but is championing himself as the strong man who's protecting us, the criminal court system is unfortunately uh, reinforcing that lie that he is keeping us safe and is doing so in ways that, quite frankly, threaten our democracy. Mm -hmm. So that is the... The reason and the rationale that I came to as I was writing this book, that I was like, this book isn't just about safety. This book is about the future of our democracy. And if we don't understand how we take care of one another, we aren't going to have a democracy left
0: at the end of this process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to ask you a question, Zach, about um, the danger of dehumanization. Mm -hmm. Um, I, uh, in November, had the privilege to go on a trip to Honduras and El Salvador to better understand um, what was happening in those countries that was moving uh, families to send minors to uh, the border unaccompanied and to get on dangerous caravans and go through all the uh, things that drastic measures that people are doing to leave their homes Mm -hmm. uh, in these countries. And uh, in El Salvador, um, was told a, a story about the fact that over the last four years or so, more than 2,000 um, young men had been killed in El Salvador by the police mm. um, who were uh, affiliated or thought to be affiliated with gangs mm. uh, and how that was able to happen with a certain level of impunity uh, because the communities um, from which they came and where they were um, were feeling that, uh, like they weren't safe mm-hmm. uh, and were had gotten to the point where they were um, unwilling to kind of come up forward for these young men mm-hmm. um, because of the way that they were associated with these gangs. And it just brought up for me the organizers and the advocates in, mm-hmm. in El Salvador were talking about how that was made possible by the fact that that these young men had been dehumanized mm-hmm. by nature of the fact that they were associated with gangs and, and things like that. And it just struck me as the extreme example mm-hmm. of where dehumanization can go. Yeah. Um, and you talk in a couple of instances in your book about the need for us to bring humanity into this notion of safety That's right. uh, and justice. Can you talk a little bit more about yeah. that concept and why it's dangerous for us to dehumanize? Yeah, I mean, I think
1: it... it it's self-evident, um, but, you know, dehumanization is uh, a, a, a core problem in terms of our country's history and has continued. As Brian Stevenson says, you know, slavery didn't end, it, it evolved. And um, what I want to lead with is some positive news, um, which is that dehumanization can be overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, When we started a campaign um, and I remember talking to you, uncle, um, when we were talking about uh, the California youth authority, youth prison system. Right. And at a time there were uh, this idea that those young people were kind of the worst of the worst and that they were incapable of redemption. And this was post the whole super predator mythology. And um, what we did was uh, tried to indirectly combat dehumanization. And if you think about the history of dehumanization, it is isolating individuals from their families, right? Because when you isolate someone from their family or from a community, it's very easy to portray them as a monster um, and portray them as less than. Um, but what we... We're able to do is just demonstrate that these young people who are being isolated in youth prisons across the state of California, sometimes for 23 hours a day for weeks and months on end, that they had folks who cared about them and who were trying desperately to see them, um, their mothers, their grandmothers, um, community members. And we went to the Capitol and we organized those families. We organized formerly incarcerated Young people, and we said, "You know, these moms are traveling two hundred and fifty miles on average to see their kids when they get there, sometimes they 're told that they can 't visit because they have on pants that look this color, uh, or you know their kids are on lockdown, so they won 't have a visit at at all. Um, but I think as legislators started to see those families and started to understand those stories and some of the hurdles that those folks were going through uh it kind of broke down some of their walls. Mm -hmm. And one of the we didn't start with a demand of, like, you need to shut all these youth prisons down necessarily. We started with a demand of, like, let families actually see each other. Like, make it easier for families to write letters because they were really restricting letter writing in. Make it easier for families to be on the phone call, uh, to talk with one another. And we were able to pass that as a first piece of legislation. And then we were able to follow up and continue to push push for legislation that resulted in the closure of five of eight youth prisons across the state of California. Um, And the part I want you to clap for is that happened, which was dope and is a human rights victory, but also the fact that youth crime continued to, to decline during that same period. So this wasn't just a a victory for human rights. It was also a victory for public safety. And yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, And I think that's the part that gets lost in dehumanization, right, is that... These are folks who could be assets to the community. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we just have to take the story back far enough. Mm -hmm. And in the case of El Salvador, we have to take the story back to what the U.S. role has been (laughs) inside of El Salvador. Uh Right. We have to take the story back far enough so that people have context for understanding Mm -hmm. what. Led to the rise of gangs that were transnational and doing work in LA, but also in El Salvador. And right. if you don't understand that story, you don't have context for what seems like right ununderstandable behavior. Absolutely. But if you have that context, it becomes much more understandable and the solutions become more obvious as well. Thank you.
0: You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Um, This question is about San Francisco, but it could easily apply easily apply to Oakland or Detroit or Washington DC Mm. Um, The question is what would you say to a marginalized and impoverished community like the Tenderloin? About healing the ongoing trauma of drug addiction dealing homelessness and poverty Mm. Um,
1: Well I would start by saying, um, I tell three stories um, at the end of the book. And they are stories designed at reimagining really tragic realities. Um, And they go, you know, the stories cross literally decades. And they're all of the different intervention points in one person's life that could have prevented tragedy, you know, sometimes decades later. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I would offer is that there are as, mi- as many problems as there are. I think there are that many solutions. And that um, when we adopt a culture of care, like those solutions become more evident. And I think the problem that we still have to overcome as a country, mm-hmm. and, there, and I'll talk about how I think we can do it, is that this lie of white supremacy, of male supremacy, of um, the supremacy of, 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 um, all kinds of supremacies <laughs> in our, in our, and isms in our society, we need to overcome that so that people in the Tenderloin are seen as people. Um, because when there was drug addiction and problems in Burlington, Vermont, I look at, um, or at least cite in the book, how, They started to flip the script when the opioid crisis was developing and it was like the police chief was the cousin of someone and could sort of see that person in themselves. Then all of a sudden, all of the remedies and all of the, oh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't lock them up anymore. It was like, oh, no, I'm going to go talk to the hospital. There was a police chief who went to the hospital and he was like, no, you're not doing it right. Can you imagine that? (laughs) No, seriously, though. Can you imagine that? A police chief who was like, no, these folks, in order to be safe, they need to, you you need to be administering, like, I'm seeing them coming back, but what if you actually, and was brainstorming with hospital staff about how to solve this Mm -hmm. problem of addiction? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they could see that person, right? They knew that person. And... Um, mm-hmm. we have some work to do, but it's overcomable. It's surmountable. Um, and yeah, I don't want to take away from the questions, but no. no yeah,
0: yeah, that's a good answer. Um, I want to ask you a budget question. Oh, budget questions. Um, <laughs> I mean, you described it due to your work and the work of others and just the way that things have moved, you know, it's hard to find a juvenile detention facility nowadays that's full, Hmm. right? Many of them are half empty. Some of them have maybe a handful of young people in there, a bunch of empty beds, Mm -hmm. yet the system is fully funded. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Can you talk about what's at play that keeps the system fully funded? Mm -hmm. Uh, And can you talk about kind of some of the strategies that um, can maybe starve the beast a little bit and, and move some of that money mm-hmm. to other places? Mm-hmm. I
1: mean, I think the main, one of the main things is just inertia and the fact that there aren't enough good jobs in our society. And so people are looking at um, what's available to them. And in a society that is focused on the criminalization of poverty, that is really governed around a framework of fear, the jobs where you can get a pension, the jobs when you have some level of job security where you can retire are disproportionately falling towards law enforcement. Mm. Um, and and that's the sign of my in my mind of uh, a not healthy government. Um, uh, yeah, like my partner tells a story about when she went and talked to like, you know, in Copenhagen in an airport, she was interviewing the folks who paid workers $22 an hour in the Copenhagen airport. And she asked the the guy, well, why would you pay them such a high wage? And he was like, well, if I didn't, then they would have to be on food stamps, and that would be the sign of a failed state, right? Um, That would be the sign of a failed state. And I think, like, we have moved from a manufacturing economy where people could earn a decent wage, on a high school education folk like my father um, to many people being laid off to moving towards a service uh, economy that doesn't serve people that doesn't pay people enough. And so I think, If we're going to have a holistic solution to this kind of starve the beast, we need to actually look at government as a whole and adopt a more cultural, uh, uh, a caring approach Mm -hmm. and be taking care of our elders. There's an elder boom in this country. Mm -hmm. There are young people who are without child care. Like we have the resources we need, but we need to actually take care of each other and invest in that. And I think that is helpful for law enforcement because we don't need police officers responding to mental health crisis. We need mental health workers responding to mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. We don't need police officers responding to school discipline. We need teachers trained and supported and having counselors in their classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think if we start to see it not as a problem of like just law enforcement but a problem as our society as a whole then we can involve and in, invoke and and see more law enforcement partners but it is going to take some time cuz some people are still stuck on this idea that they're the only ones that can help those young people and i know because there are some folks in our county in Alameda County who are like we need to build this new probation camp because Young people need housing, they need education, they need employment opportunities. I'm like, all of those things are true, and they shouldn't have to go through a cage to get those things. Right.
0: Thank you. (laughs) You know, in the book, you, as I said before, kind of lay out, I think, some really great frameworks. But before you do that, in almost every chapter, um, you tell stories. Mm. What, What was important to you about kind of telling stories is a way to frame your recommendations and frame your thoughts around where we needed to go. Yeah. Um, I find them more interesting. Um,
1: (laughs) and I hope that you all do too. Um, and, um, I think it was important for, for me to just be able to connect with folks and kind of tell my own story. Um, and doing this work that there are a lot of very tragic stories and I wanted to kind of do like a little bit of choose your own adventure. I, I don't know if folks remember that, if you're the a right age demographic, but it was like, if you want to, you know, jump over the snake, turn to page 68. If you want to try to fight the snake, turn to page 26. Um, so I was trying to bring a little bit of that into the book to be able to like spark some, you know, creative imagination. I think we desperately need it. Um, One of the things that I did want to talk about is Restore Oakland as one of those examples is Mm -hmm. we built this 18,000 square foot um, new space with the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United, Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth, Community Works West. Shout out to, to Designing Justice, Designing Spaces who helped design this space. And basically, it's our attempt to put forward what community safety looks like when you um, do it in the interest of community members, right um, and there are some folks who are sitting in the the front row who help bring that vision into being, and some of you all who who make and and the San Francisco foundation, thank you Fred um, <laughs> who helped make that possible because what we what we found as we were doing all the organizing and the advocacy and we were you know shutting down the meetings is like when the, when the government got the money, they weren't really investing it in ways that were transformative. So we wanted to provide kind of a visual aid. And so the first floor of that building is a restaurant run by formerly incarcerated folks and others who have been locked out of opportunity. On the second floor is a restorative justice space so people can be held accountable and still held in community. And then we're gonna have organizing throughout the space to really hold elected officials accountable because y'all know and have seen that elected officials do need to be held accountable, despite what the Senate, U.S. Senate says. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so that is kind of another way in which we're trying to spark the public imagination, but not everybody's going to go through that space. So that's part of the reason why I wrote the book.
0: Yeah. Um, And you mentioned earlier, whether it's at the federal level through kind of bipartisan work or at the state level where people are going to the voters and voters are voting for criminal justice reform also happening in the legislature Mm. that feels like there's a lot of um, momentum around reform conversations. But I'm wondering kind of how you feel about reform uh, and um, trying to fix the existing system um, and how you think about restorative justice practice in relationship to that. Um, Is it, Do we need to do both? Mm -hmm. Do we need to focus our attention on kind of creating an alternative system? What are are your thoughts there? How do you feel? Um,
1: I do think we need to do both. And I'll give you a couple of different examples. One, I'm super proud of the work of our policy team. Um, Emily Harris isn't here, but she's been doing amazing work, working with folks inside of San Quentin um, in prisons across the state of California. And part of what they've been doing is just like developing policy ideas. So we've been talking with folks about, like, what are the policies that impact you, understanding that a lot of these laws uh, are duplicative of three strikes, that there are a lot of opportunities to roll back unnecessary sentence additions on people's time. So not only have we been working with folks and then working with them to get those laws passed, we've also then been working with folks thereafter to actually do some of the... um, work to get in front of judges to reduce those sentences and have been building out a network of of folks who are doing all the way from the design of the legislation to the implementation of it all with currently incarcerated folks and so i think the reform work is absolutely Mm -hmm. important Um, And I think ultimately we're trying to push towards a vision, a world beyond prisons, a world without prisons, Mm -hmm. a world where we take care of one another as kind of the first response. Mm -hmm. um, And that incarceration, if anything, is a last resort. And so um, I do think that uh, it's both and that we need to be um really addressing the concrete conditions inside of prisons Mm -hmm. um and at the same time really uh, fighting for a different vision altogether
0: thank you um a couple of questions from the audience here Um, i'm going to paraphrase this one but i mean for people who have are in positions of influence Mm. in relationship to the criminal justice system Mm -hmm. or who work within the criminal justice system and Mm -hmm. see the need for change. Mm -hmm. What do you say to those folks uh, around this work? I have two words, and those two words are take risks.
1: Um, It's the same advice for everybody. Um, I talked about, you know, starting off as a people pleaser. um, You know, one of the first times I ever took the kind of risk that my mom was scared about um was with the Ella baker center and doing a civil disobedience and getting arrested um and that was a big risk for me but even bigger than that was the the end of the summer came and they were still moving forward with the super jail and i actually took a semester off law school and that was like a big risk because i just was on the people pleasing track just like you just keep on this education track so I think that when the status quo is greed is good, when the status quo is family separation, when the status quo is demonization of entire communities, then we're going to have to take risks to get to safety. We are going to have to take real risks to get to safety. And that doesn't look the same for everybody. That looks different for you as a foundation executive or me as an executive director. Um, But I think if you're in your comfort zone, inside of um institutions that um are harming folks by and large inside of of systems that are geared towards fear and cycles of, of poverty and incarceration that um we're going to have to get out of our comfort zones to really challenge those institutions and that inertia um so i would just offer like please take risks do things that will uh
0: put you outside of your comfort zone mm-hmm. Um, here's another one. Um, given the deep-seated pathologies of racism and separation and oppression and injustice, how do we create the kind of systemic change that you're talking about for restorative justice?
1: Can you say that question one more time?
0: Cause... Um, given how deep-seated the, pat- the pathologies of racism and separation mm. and oppression Thank you. and injustice are, yeah. um, how do we create that kind of systemic change that supports something like restorative justice?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's easy, but I do think that things can be broken down, and so I would break it down into a few different steps, and there are probably things to add within those steps. Um, step one is we got to get these architects of anxiety out of office. Um, mm. The the number forty five, thank you. Mm-hmm. You can clap for that. Mm-hmm. Um, number 45 is one of those architects of anxiety. And we have to use the gifts that our ancestors and our elders bequeathed us and fought for to make sure that we had an opportunity to vote. And we must absolutely take advantage of that and continue to work to enlarge the franchise to make sure that we get those architects of anxiety out of office. Um, The second thing is like we need to, undo the infrastructure that has been built up in a bipartisan fashion over years and decades. Um, So the 94 crime bill that was passed in 1994 was passed under um, Clinton and passed under Democratic administration. And that's something that needs to be undone. Mm. It needs to be repealed and replaced. As I understand that Ayanna Presley is starting to develop some momentum in that direction. So that's kind of a second piece. And then the third piece is we need to build out the vision of what we need and bring resources back to our communities. And so one of the things that folks can do here in California is support the Schools and Communities First initiative. How many people have heard of Schools and Communities First? Okay, a little bit hard to see y'all. So the Schools and Communities First initiative Mm -hmm. um, would reverse decades of resource misallocation, right? I was born in 1977, 1978 is when Prop 13 passed and decimated California's tax base. And that's the same time that the prison guard union started going around from city to city, town to town saying, we have something to bring resources to your community. We have something that will bring infrastructure to your community. If you locate your prison here, we'll be able to bring plumbing and <laughs> jobs. And <laughs> literally, that was, yeah, yeah. that was the sales pitch. Mm-hmm. And from 1980 to 2000, we built 20 new prisons and just one new university, right? So the Schools and Communities' first initiative would say, no corporations, you can't just continue to... Um, not pay your taxes. You have to pay taxes in the state of California. And those taxes are going to go to support schools and communities to make sure that we have healthy and safe communities. Um, and so it's not, uh, it's not a one size fit all solution. It's not an easy solution. But I think that if we um, tell the stories of who, of who our families are, if we get rid of these architects of anxiety, if we decrease the infrastructure they have to continue to uh, uh, cycle people in in and out of poverty Mm -hmm. and incarceration, and if we bring resources back to our communities, Mm -hmm. then we can actually overcome that legacy of slavery and genocide and all of those things that are still present with us Mm -hmm. today.
0: Here's a... um, interesting question that um, says, do either your organizations actively or financially support the creation of public banks uh, to help address well-being related to housing and minority business support in the San Francisco um, Bay Area? We don't have enough money to support a bank.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He, he does, though. Yeah, uh,
0: <laughs> I, I'll be brief because this is Zach's show. Um, we were we've been following closely the legislation in Sacramento yeah. uh, that was introduced by uh, David Chu that was enabling for uh, public banks, and I think we're very interested in uh, convening folks to see if there's the the appetite for a movement to establish uh, one in the Bay Area. I think having a alternative to um, the shareholder-serving financial system that we have now is actually really important towards having uh, a system that has more public accountability. So yeah, yeah and hopefully just, we'll be more into it.
1: I underestimated, I see MACA over there, so she'd be mad at me if I didn't mention. Um, <laughs> we started this initiative called Restore Oakland that I talked about, this mm-hmm. vision of community safety. But what we also found as we were doing it is that we uh, were also producing a, a vision of community development. Right, because so often in the Bay Area, when you do something close to a barge station, it's furthering gentrification, mm-hmm. it's moving people out. And so we found this property that was two blocks from the barge station, And we developed this initiative. And we're like, oh, this isn't just a new vision about community safety. This is also us putting forward a vision of community development and Mm -hmm. restorative economics. Um, And so as we were doing that work, we were actually approached by some folks who are exploring this idea of public bank. And Tash Nguyen, who's with Restore Oakland, Inc., has been kind of having those conversations. Um,
0: Not that we have the resources, but we're happy to help guide
1: the (laughs) process, right?
0: But <laughs> um, a little bit related, but I think a slightly different topic as well. This uh, person asked, can you talk about how uh, the current housing crisis perpetuates the severing of mother and child relationships? Mm. Uh, and why is there not a care about black and brown women's motherhood? Mm. Yeah, I'm mindful of
1: being in San Francisco and, um, you know, our I feel like our family has been kind of dispersed around the bay area i don't know if you would agree on carolyn and on our, <laughs> i'm looking at my family but i feel like when we go to uh a picnic in antioch and you know folks are having uh a picnic that is almost exclusively black folks from a particular neighborhood in san francisco i'm like <laughs> you know this is not okay and this is not right and Mm -hmm. um some of what we've been doing with restore oakland is trying to create kind of a stance against gentrification in east oakland which feels like kind of one of the last strongholds for black people in in oakland period um and so i don't know that i have an Mm -hmm. answer to Mm -hmm. that question i mean i hope I don't know if there's opportunity to have some dialogue with the audience, but I would love if that's possible. I don't know if Commonwealth club does that or if that's like not appropriate or whatever, but so there are like mm-hmm. really amazing stories that we should be lifting up. And, um, and I want to lift up the work of ACE and Carol Fife and folks yeah. who have been doing amazing work, um, really lifting up housing as a human right. And now are doing, you know, just continuing to do amazing work. So, um, yeah, just shout out to, to Carol five to ace and all of that work.
0: Yeah. And on this topic, you know, we were in the green room and we were um, talking about the conversation you had with David D. Mm. Uh, and he kind of asked the question about, like, for these kind of folks who are housing predators mm. uh, and inflicting harm in that way, do they deserve some kind of restorative justice and um, I guess I would ask the question in a little bit of a different way, which is you talked about the architects of fear Mm -hmm. uh, and you talked about the real uh, kind of sources of harm. Mm -hmm. Do the do the people in the institutions behind all of that stuff, are they candidates for restorative justice Mm -hmm. practice?
1: (laughs) Um, I, I think so, absolutely. But I think that people tend to understand restorative justice in ways that are limited, um, Mm -hmm. as just a person and a person kind of situation. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you do restorative justice with powerful people, it can't just be a person and a person kind of Mm -hmm. situation. It actually has to be, um, appropriate for that situation. And so like when, you know, they did, um, truth and reconciliation in South Africa it was through a tribunal. It was through, you know, really having a community of people speak to the harm that folks had have caused. And there were still challenges in, in terms of that process in South Africa um, that I won't go into now. But mm-hmm. suffice to say, yes, but you have to do it in a way that allows, you know, real accountability to happen. So just a kind of more micro example is like if there's a restaurant tour and that owner is harassing women inside of his restaurant um and doing harmful things Mm -hmm. like there has to be a community-centered process where you're developing an accountability plan that holds that person with power accountable in ways that Maybe means that they don't continue to run that restaurant, Mm -hmm. that they have consequences that are appropriate Mm -hmm. to their station and doesn't put them in that same situation to be continuing that harm, um, but still holds them in community and creates an opportunity for there to be lessons learned from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And Zach, what are you um, exposed to nowadays uh, that puts wind in your sails uh, and gives you hope? Um, well, definitely my kids.
1: Um, one of the coolest things that happened at the book launch was um, while I was doing this book talk, um, the fir- my first ever book talk, my daughters, Akilah and Lena, had gotten a piece of construction paper. And they had found some stickers and they were going around the room and some of y'all might have signed the card. So if you did, I appreciate it. But they were like having people sign this card for me and just saying, you know, thank you and keep doing what you're doing. And um, that was just like amazing. That was just a beautiful thing. And then, you know, some uh, also some hip hop some artists who I won't name who some of the lyrics I have to just like let go by me, but still get me, you know, prepared to, to, to be in this fight and to continue to have energy.
0: Um, Yeah. Cool. Um, And so I believe that people um, like you and and others who are kind of deeply engaged in this work, um, being responsive to the uh, issues that are, bubbling up in community and fighting uh, for justice from the front line uh, are heroes. Um, Can you describe what your superpower is? Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No.
1: um, (laughs) no. Um, I really reject the question. Um, We um, that's why I should have brought the T-shirt. So our T-shirt at the top, it says Ella Baker and it has a picture of Ella Ella Baker and it says she led. So can you. And um, the idea is that she believed in the power of everyday people to make change. She organized with students and with sharecroppers. And she held powerful people accountable. Um, Sometimes people who we revere, even like Dr. King. She was like, you've got a great thing going. And, you know, here's the way in which I want to bring students and other people into this movement. And so we don't always get it right as an organization, but that is definitely part of our ethos. And the thing that I said at the last book talk is like, I know that each of us can take the risk that we need to get to safety because I did it and I am a hell of people pleasing. <laughs> like I said, you know, get the awards, stay on the track, be afraid. Um, but the thing that is amazing is that courage is contagious, right? Courage is contagious because when you get up there and you stand in your power, um, And when you, you know, you say, no, Alameda County, I'd be damned if you build the biggest super jail for youth in our county. Um, And, you know, and then, you know, they arrest you, they put you in jail and you get out and you think that they changed their mind, but they still went forward anyways. But then you (laughs) stick to it and you keep at them and you focus on that one supervisor and she changes her vote. And then people, you know, hear about it here and they hear about it there. And um, that just picks up, and so one of the things that I know is that in this moment of fear with this president that we have, like people might be feeling like, oh, we can't do it, but think about 1996. Think about Pete Wilson as the governor of California. Thinking about, think about the lies and the, the, the misinformation that he was spreading and the propositions that were coming down year after year after year, and the prisons that were being built year after year after year, and what a sea change we've had in this state. And that's not to say that everything is perfect, because it certainly isn't. But if I could not have imagined where we were, where we are now in terms of criminal justice reform and, and, and at the turn of the century. And so we can do this. We can do this, y'all. And we will do this. That's, yes. that's my... All right. I hope that's parting words. I,
0: ain't, no, yeah. I don't got too much more water yet. I know I know you rejected the question, but I think the audience just saw your superpower. Oh. Yeah. Um, any last words um, by the book <laughs> each time? Thank you, Allie.
1: Um I would appreciate it. Um, we haven't yet figured out how to get books inside to uh, folks in prisons across California because it's a hardcover book. But we are aiming to do that. So we are working on that. So if you don't have, if you don't want to buy the book, buy it for someone else. And if um, you can donate to the Ella Baker Center, also help us get the books um, to, out far and wide. And, and please, like, spread the word and, and tell people about the book. We really would appreciate that. Um, and all the proceeds go to the, supporting the Ella Baker Center. After the publisher gets their money.
0: Yes. <laughs> so, Zach, and I think the audience will agree with me, thank you for the book. I know. Thank you for your thoughtfulness. Thank you for your work. Um, the book, again, uh, is We Keep Us Safe, Building Secure, Just and Inclusive Communities. I want to remind everybody that the book is in the back. Uh, and with that, we are done.
1: Oh, what's up? <laughs> I don't know about the gavel at the end of this thing, but that's all right. <laughs>